Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about the fine arts. We're talking about how fine arts mix with game design. What does that look like to take literature and and mesh it with games and mechanics and things like that? We're talking to Chris Totten, professor of game design at Kent State University and founder of Pie for Breakfast Studios. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, man, super excited to have you. You know, you're a teacher. I'm a teacher. You're a big fan of literature. I'm a big fan of literature. I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation as we discuss, you know, kind of what does it look like to take ideas from stories and literature and the fine arts and maybe get into some other things as well, maybe with orchestra or music, that kind of thing, but then mix it with game design and bring that to the, you know, game design realm and, and add mechanics to it and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm really pumped to kind of get your thoughts on this. You're you're a professor of game design, so you, you teach these concepts both, you know, with video games and, and board games. But uh, before we get into the uh, topic at hand, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, thank, uh, first of all, uh, like I said, great to be here. Um, so my, my background is I uh, graduated about 10 years ago with a uh, master's of architecture. And I had been very interested in game design, both as a consumer, somebody who plays, you know, games, board games, video games, but also, you know, that was around the time that there were a lot of books on game design starting to come out uh, that approached game design as a field to be studied, like a field of academic inquiry. It wasn't just, you know, how to use 3D Studio Max or how to use the Unreal Engine anymore. It was more thoughtful, critical looks into how games are designed from a conceptual standpoint and experiential standpoint. Uh, and I really got into that. And since I was studying architecture from that standpoint as well, I really got into seeing the the similarities between the two fields of design. And my, my thesis was actually on game design and architecture. So I got out of uh, grad school. You know, that was at a time when, you know, architecture firms weren't really hiring a whole lot of people. I got some work doing 3D modeling for architects, but I used that time to also build up a game design and, and game art portfolio and uh, eventually got a job teaching, you know, 3D modeling for game designers and then use that opportunity to, to get myself into the game industry. So I've been making uh, all sorts of games, mobile games, uh, you know, teaching like serious games, uh, educational games, things like that. Uh, also some like commercial indie stuff. But over the course of this time, I used that background in, in architecture and seeing those links between the field of architecture and the field of game design to start thinking about how games interact with and can be evaluated and, and analyzed through the aesthetics of these fields. You know, um, for example, like tomorrow I'm giving a, a, a presentation on this at my university, but one of the things that you know, happened about nine or so years ago is that uh, we started not so much talking about our games art. We started talking about how are they art because you had things like the Supreme Court uh, ruling that that video games were protected media um, under the First Amendment. You had uh, museums starting to have big showcases of games like the Smithsonian American Art Museum and MoMA. So it's been a really good decade for that. Um, and it's one of those things that if you really think about it, how, you know, okay, great. We are having games acknowledged in this way, but how do we more thoughtfully understand them in the, in the context of this landscape, instead of just treating them as something sort of separate and, and different from these media, how do we actually, uh, bring them into this mix and then start to curate and consider them among this landscape, uh, like we do with, you know, film uh, to an extent, comic books, uh, and, and graphic design and commercial art, even stuff like that. Gotcha. And you've also written several books on these topics too, right? Yeah, I, I've, uh, 
written a book. Uh, one is called An Architectural Approach to Level Design, and there's two editions of that. Uh, the latest edition just came out this year, but it takes a look at, it's basically a lot of the stuff I compiled for my architecture thesis and turned that into a book about how to view game environments like pieces of architecture. Uh, and then the newest edition has a lot of stuff that comes from my experience creating uh, games in the time since that I've created the first edition, you know, things like uh, teaching through level design and the psychology of teaching in levels and things like that. Uh, and then I also edited a, a volume called level design processes and experiences. And that was a book about, um, you know, I asked people I knew in the industry to, to give some of their techniques or their perspectives and write up, you know, what they thought about when they were designing. Uh, somebody asked me like, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a book like that? And I was like, that would be great. Uh, I don't feel comfortable writing it myself because I'm just one person. I'd rather get like a, a selection of people. So that's what I tried to do with that one. Very cool. And now walk me through kind of what happened to, to help you want to make the jump over to the board gaming side. It sounds like you had a lot of video game experience and, and passion and whatnot, but then you created this game called La Mancha, which is based on Don Quixote. And I want to talk more about that game and kind of how it works in a minute. But like what got you into the board gaming realm? Because I've heard, you know, I've talked to a lot of video game designers and they've kind of been drawn towards board gaming for different reasons. So what was yours? Well, one of the books that I think really uh, helped me along in that, and, and you know, I, I read a lot about game design while also experiencing it as a thing that I did. But uh, there's this book called Game Design Workshop by Tracy Fullerton, uh, you know, from the USC uh, game game program, and she talks a lot about paper prototyping and a play-centric approach to design, where you learn about your game project by getting it in playable form as soon as possible. And that book was really great because it unlocked the sort of universality of game design. Uh, you know, and, and another book that did this for me was uh, the book Rules of Play. And I think that book also helped me along uh, by uh, Katie Salen and Eric Zimmerman. But that book also helped me along because it was one that did talk about design, architecture, the fine arts in terms of games, even though it wasn't widely being done at that point. And where I, you know, those, those things had a big influence on me. So when, you know, in those types of writings, they would just drop, you know, Battleship and Metal Gear Solid together in the drop of a hat, right? So they didn't really put walls between them. And uh, Fullerton really outlines a process of, you know, how do you abstract video game mechanics into board game mechanics and what can that be like? So I, I always thought, and, and I still try to do this with my own students, but uh, I teach a class called game prototyping. And the first exercise of it is always to make a tabletop game. And I try to embody this idea of like video games and, and board games can be very similar by challenging them to, um, sort of demake, even though I don't really consider it demaking. Um, but you know, convert a video game into a board game experience and understand like how you can abstract video game mechanics, you know, and physics systems and AI into a tabletop. Um, but that gets them thinking in that mode. So I already saw those connections there and I was reading Don Quixote uh, and I was really enjoying it. And and like I do sometimes I said to myself, I was like, wow, I'd really like to play this as a game and, and inhabit this world. But to do so as a video game would be probably way too big in scope. Um, or I would make something very small that wouldn't really do justice to the actual experience of the novel. So I, uh, I you know, some friends and I, we play board games together, uh, like people do. And uh, one of our friends, you know, sent out this email saying, hey, how about for the next board game night, we make prototypes ourselves and bring those instead of board games. And I was like, aha, that's it. That's, this is the excuse to make, to make uh, the Quixote game that I wanted. So I started thinking about like what kind of interactions would really create that experience of, of being in, in Cervantes's world. And that's how it got started. 
Gotcha. Very cool, man. Well, let's get into the topic then, into that topic. But first, let's get a good working definition. If we're going to be talking about mixing fine arts with game design, what what are the fine arts? In your opinion, what does that even mean? So I usually, you know, I, I'm painting with kind of a broad brush here. Um, admittedly, I'm looking at things within fine arts and humanities. Think of architecture, uh painting, abstract art, graphic design, uh, literature in my, you know, so again, I'm, I'm painting with kind of a broad brush, but I'm trying to look at the overall, like, I guess, canon of, of works, uh, like cultural works and try to find ways that, that games can comment on them, but also can be influenced themselves by them. Uh, so a lot of it is that I work with, especially cultural institutions. That's sort of my, my big thing is, um, you know, when I was doing a lot of the development of architecture stuff, I would go and speak at the American Institute of Architects or AIA about, you know, the crossovers between games and architecture. Uh, I work with art museums to create events surrounding video games, uh, or games in general. We also have lots of events with, uh, board games. But the idea there being, you know, how it's not just putting games in a museum like that was cool the first few times. But how do we contextualize the games among your artworks and thus use curation as a way to understand games? Uh, And then same thing with like libraries. How do you use and, and I did this a lot with La Mancha. How do you play a game like La Mancha and how does that deepen your understanding of a, of a novel? So I'm like I said, I'm treating this very broadly, but I think we are in an era where those broad strokes are very helpful to guide us towards finding like tighter, more focused lines of inquiry later on. Yeah, definitely. And so you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit so far, but why? Why is this important? Why did you kind of travel down, down this road? Why do you hope more uh, game designers kind of do the same thing? I don't know. I guess with my architecture background, it just seemed like... I went to an architecture school at a liberal arts college. So it just sort of, it's the way my brain works. Um, I get really testy (laughs) to be honest when people, you know, get very attached to like games are technology. I'm like, no, they don't have to be technology. They can be this other world. Um, And especially when you look at the current state of the game industry at the time of this recording, there's, this like Twitter kerfuffle going on with game academia and the game industry where, um, and and the, the game developer who said this didn't actually even say this, it was just taken this way, but there was something to the effect of, um, you know, game design schools are graduating a lot of people and there aren't as many jobs out there. And isn't that dangerous? Well, some people took that to mean that, uh, and and I think this is something we should genuinely talk about. Some um, to mean that like we are over graduating people, and it started this whole discussion of of uh, you know what it means to be in the game industry and and how you can get jobs and what it means to survive these jobs and are we even training people for like professional game jobs like in you know your EAs and your Activisions and your Blizzards types of things, but one thing that I really try to do and, and having this crossover mindset, um, I, I struggle to use the term design thinking because it's been kind of like co-opted into a buzzword, but in architecture school, we did call this sort of thing design thinking. Um, but taking that mindset and being able to say, I have these game skills and, you know, how do I apply them in different areas? And this is where you get into the ability to make educational games or serious games or art games or um, be a game designer who maybe you don't work at a big studio, but you do work at, you know, with cultural institutions doing games research or something like that. Uh, you know, these are emerging areas of the game industry that are in the game industry. And it's important, again, you know, my purpose has sort of shifted from this is kind of what I was interested because of my background into this is what I'm interested in because it helps students and young designers that I'm mentoring. Um, So that's, you know, another aspect of it. Yeah, very cool. And so 
kind of coming back to the fine arts side of things, why do you think it's important to design games that do bridge that gap between fine arts? You know, it's not always just, you know, blowing up zombies or, or shooting aliens on a spaceship. You can also mix in some of these fine art things into game design. Why is that a big deal? Well, and, and you're kind of touching on it um, because I think that we are at a, a nexus point where we have this medium and it's starting to mature in a way that it is not just zapping aliens or, or blowing up zombies. And I, uh, you know, I'm not saying that to say that I dislike any of those things. I actually am also kind of chipping away at a long-term zombie game project. So I love, I love me some zombie games and, and all that other typical stuff. But, you know, we have a real opportunity to, to plant our flag a bit and say, you know, this is how we function as an artistic medium. And I observe this when, so I, I have two events right now, um, you know, with museums that are kind of like ongoing efforts. One is the Smithsonian American Art Museum Arcade or SAM Arcade uh, that we run every year in August. And another is um, we just started, like we're going to have the, uh, we're going to have it next Saturday again at the time of this recording. Um, it's called uh, Open World Arcade uh, at the Akron Art Museum in Akron, Ohio. But that accompanies a exhibition of contemporary art inspired by video games. And that's kind of perfect because you have these situations where somebody will say, I'm going to go to the art museum. And then they see games there. And at first they're very confused. They're like, well, I was kind of getting coming here to get away from that. But then when you have maybe an independent game developer or a board game uh, creator, you know, somebody who's actually done this themselves and the person goes and talks to them, they realize that there is a deep design process to this. There's a deep artistic process to this and often expressive process. And that is the same thing that artists do. So it's really important, I think, at this time, you know, there's a generation of people that have, you know, bought in and, and believe this. But even with that generation, we have to show them that, okay, it's not enough to say that games are art. You have to understand how they are art and why they are art and what are the systems of art. Um, you know, for example, with uh, Open World, the exhibition, you know, what we've seen uh, or what the curators have seen, I'm not involved in the curation of that. I'm just doing the event that goes along with it. Um, but what the curators have seen is people will say, well, how is this different from fan art on DeviantArt? And they say, well, this is where this artist has put it through the curatorial process of the art world. And that's where it's gotten the attention. And that's why we're showing it versus something that is, you know, your more typical fan art. And, and showing people the bridges between these worlds, you know, on one side that games can be very artistic and can do a lot of the same things that fine art can. And on the other side, uh, what the systems are that allows games and game inspired artworks to become accepted. Uh, I think those are really important right now. Yeah, definitely. I am right there on board with that. You know, I, I teach English at a high school uh, down here in Honduras. I teach 10th and 12th grade students. And it's been a, a huge challenge just to get kids to read anything, right? They are so glued to their devices. And so even though I'm offering up the, the best literature in, in human history, right, mm -hmm. it's still very difficult to get them to do anything. And so I started thinking a while back, and actually Don Quixote was a, a part of the catalyst for this. Uh, they're having to read the... Uh, can't remember ten or twelve graders. Then they're having to read Don Quixote in their Spanish class, mm -hmm. and uh, we were talking about some different things. They're like, "Oh, we got to read Don Quixote." Like they were so upset about it. And I thought, you, "You mean you have to read one of the greatest pieces of literature in human history? How how dreadful, how terrible uh, your life must be!" But and so I started thinking, like, how can we make this more interesting? How can we make it more fun? And so I started thinking, okay, how can we make it more gamified? And I created this like kind of classroom RPG setting where it's taking all the stories from literature, Sherlock Holmes, Don Quixote, and, and Wizard of Oz, all these different things, and then putting the the, the class, and they, they create characters and they throw their characters into this world, and it's the world's called Lit, L-I-T, and then they have to go into all these challenges of literature. And so they meet Don Quixote, and they end up having to actually fight a windmill. The windmill actually does come to life, and they have to fight it as a big golem kind of thing. And so I started thinking, how can we take you know, education and games and literature and bring it all together and have some fun. And it sounds like you're doing the same kind of thing. And so uh, that, that's really awesome. 
man, when does the Kickstarter for that start up? That sounds awesome. <laughs> I am, man, I'm in the process right now of really trying to develop the world and, and create the maps. And, and it's cool because I can just test, test it on my class and it's, you know, it's part of my curriculum now. <laughs> my playtesting nice. is curriculum. Um, but it's been a lot of fun to get them to think. And also the kids that did read, they have an advantage because when they had to fight the, uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, a while back, the kids that actually read the story and knew about that dog and understood how to, you know, beat it, they were like, "Oh, we can do this!" and and they get to have this kind of moment in class where the the kids that you know just screwed around and read the, the Cliff Notes summary and didn't actually read the book, you know, they they were like, "I don't know what to do. I don't know how to beat this thing." Because you like the levels, you can't just go up there and and beat the thing up. That's one thing I told them. Like yeah. these enemies you you fight, they're not just big bags of hit points, and you go hit it with a stick twelve times and you win. Like no, you're gonna have to figure this out and critically think. And that's another thing I think literature can help these students you know do is is think what was going on contextually back in 18 whatever when this was written like why do you think the author said it this way why do you think this was going on in the story what was happening in society there are so many things we could learn from the history of literature not just the stories themselves and so it's just really cool i love being able to cross over these ideas of, of games and gamification and the classroom and literature and, and the fine arts and so man i'm all about what you're doing and i know you've been doing a lot of research with this as well and so tell me kind of about your research what's been the uh, the kind of outcomes of that what have you been what you've been trying to figure out and that kind of thing um so with la mancha in particular you know and i'm not doing this as like a formal like education studies um that's that's just like not the world i'm in uh you know and and because a, a few people have actually said like oh you're so what where's your study going to be and i'm like uh um you know because i'm more of like a design art scholar um but, you know, a lot of the research has been looking into the, not only the, you know, the novel itself, but also secondary commentary on the novel. So for example, uh, you can go and go online to Yale, at, you know, Yale's website, Yale University, and they have open courses. Well, one of the open courses is actually a course on uh, the Quixote. And, you know, you can sit there and like listen to the lectures. So I listen to the lectures like a podcast and, you know, I would write down like, oh, that's interesting. That could be an interesting game mechanic or, um, you know, oh, that's a good point. Like there's a certain character, um, uh, Hines de Pasamonte. He's a he's a thief that that Don Quixote keeps uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza keep running into. And, you know, in that. In the book, it's stated, but also it was emphasized in the in the lectures for this, you know, open course that he's cross-eyed. So there's actually, you know, I took note of that where I'm like, okay, when I draw the card that has him on it, I need to make sure that he is cross-eyed so that it, it fits in with this. Nobody's called me on that thinking it's an error, but it is something that I always look at and I'm like, somebody's going to think that I drew his eyes kind of funny and then I'll be like, aha, actually... Um, this is based on, um, there's obviously much more literary critique stuff going on, but that's, I think a good surface level, um, use of it is just getting these things, uh, really accurate to, to the book and understandings of the book, but also things about, you know, I think this is a game where there was a, a surface level of design that is like how to play. And, you know, I got the how to play fairly early within the few first few iterations, but then you start drilling down into the design of individual cards and the cards have, I guess I should describe the game. Um, so La Mancha is a three, uh, storytelling card game for three to five players. You have a, uh, it works a lot like a mix of apples to apples and munchkin, where you have a hand of, of cards with phrases from books of chivalry on them. And you flip over cards uh, from a journey deck. That journey deck will have story prompts from Don Quixote on them. So you use the phrases in your sh hand of chivalry cards to tell stories based on uh, what the story prompt is. Like it'll say, uh, you you are at an inn and you think that you're you think that you're at a fine castle. And according to the laws of chivalry, they're just going to give you free room and board. But how are you actually going to explain this to the people who are running this in um, that that you think, you know, that you are thinking that they're just going to uh, let you stay overnight for free because you're a knight. So you have to use one of your phrases to, to do that. And there's variations on this, uh, including like 
composing love poems to specific characters. That's another type of card or even battling it out. You know, when you tell a good story, it's this, you know, best storyteller wins game. You get a treasure, that treasure, you know, makes your knight stronger. And then, then you can fight things like windmills. Um, and, you know, after a certain number of these, like they're called feet cards appear, you like whoever has the most feet cards at the end of the game wins. So that's the basic summary of, of La Mancha. Um, but, you know, building those cards, building the treasures, building the storytelling elements um, involved a lot of looking at the significance in the character and what is the symbolism between each character and, and their part in the story and coming up with a set of mechanics that, that uh, for each card allows them to represent their place, but also actually create interesting gameplay. Yeah, definitely. And walk me through that process of creating game mechanics for a story out of literature, right? It's, you know, I guess you could have done a normal, you know, roll dice and you battle it out and that kind of thing. You could have made it kind of combat oriented, but you you didn't do that. And I'm really glad you didn't. I think that would have been a a way to do it for sure. But I think the storytelling aspect is such a cool way to do it. So walk me through maybe some different things you tried and that didn't work so well and kind of how you ultimately arrived where you are. Uh, So, and, and I've used this for other games. I actually... Um, I made a game a few years ago called Lizitsky's Revenge, which is based on this poster uh, called Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge um, by the uh, Bolshevik artist El Lizitsky. It's a, it's a Bolshevik propaganda poster. But I wanted to make a game that reflected a piece of fine artwork. So that I was teaching graphic design history at the time, and that particular piece had a very video game like thing. You know, if you, if somebody is listening and goes and Google searches the artwork, it basically has this giant red triangle uh, superimposed over a white circle. And that's supposed to be the Bolshevik revolution, you know, defeating the czarist regime. And this was made in like 20 or 1920. Um, So that had like kind of an action thing going on. And I was like, okay, well, let's look at this as a, as a process. I'm going to analyze this artwork and I'm going to think about what verbs I see. Uh, so game designers talk a lot about designing in verb, right? Uh, and that's your like core mechanics. So what verbs do I see? I see this uh, red wedge is kind of busting through this barrier. That's like the black, this like giant black square shape. Um, and you see kind of like other forms. So, you know, creates a almost particle effect look. Um, on it. And I'm like, well, what games do I know that have this sort of thing where you're like trying to get to an enemy that's hiding behind a barrier? And I was like, wait, that's that's like Yar's Revenge on Atari 2600. So that's where Lazisky's Revenge comes. It's Yar's Revenge, but with Russian constructivism. And, you know, that actually worked really well, that, that process of like taking a piece, analyzing it for its verbs, and then maybe... You know, I, I'm, and this is something that I trained with in architecture school, but we always look at design precedent. So, you know, if you're creating a, a um, you know, a building that sits on a site a very certain way, you look at other buildings that have sat on their sites that very certain way, and you study them and you kind of riff on that. Um, and, and I found that that's actually very, because a lot of game design comes from like tech and computer science, that's. Um, people get really upset about that because they think it's like not how product design works, but it's, it's how design design works. And um, so I, you know, for La Mancha, I took that into Don Quixote. It was like, well, what are the verbs of Don Quixote? You know, it seems that yes, there's a lot of, like you said, fighting and, you know, battling things, but then there's also a lot of him just recontextualizing and storytelling where he'll see, you know, a herd of sheep, but he will then tell a story about how it's this huge army fighting another army. And then he jumps into action. So I was like, okay, then what games do I see where you perhaps tell stories or recontextualize or identify things? And, you know, those, uh, metagame, apples to apples, cards against humanity games, super fight games are, you know, they're, they're a big thing right now. So I was like, well, there we go. There's a, a popular game base that I can use and then kind of build on that. So that's, 
you know, uh, that's more or less the process. Yeah, very cool. And so one thing you, you actually just kind of brought to my mind is this really interesting the design challenge of almost like go to the art museum, look at some paintings, and then design a game based on that, right? Or go in the public domain of, of different, you know, I, I can't remember that there's different like libraries that have kind of put all their art out in the public domain. You can just use it as, as you will. Go there, look through the galleries, and design a game based on one of the pieces of art that you see. I think it's a really cool design challenge, just even if it's just a, a way to practice and to get better and to grow and kind of understand the way game design works as, as a way way to do things. Have you done that in any other ways? You talk about the, the propaganda poster and you kind of creating a game like that. Any other things or any design challenges you kind of maybe put on your students in this kind of way of taking fine arts and then turning it into games or game mechanics? So it's funny you mentioned this because uh, one, public domain is actually a big thing that I'm pushing right now. One, because it is so many works are in the public domain. So it's a good way to to tell people, you know, you can create inspirations from these other things and not worry about stepping on any toes. You don't have to, not, not everything has to come, you know, like Athena out of your head, like out of Zeus's head, right? Uh, you can, you can base things on stuff. Um, and I think that's really important for creating non-stereotypical works. Not everything has to be fantasy and sci-fi. Um, so I think that's one way that that sort of design challenge can help. Um, but we actually did have a local museum, the Cleveland Museum of Art, recently put their whole collection into the public domain. And, uh, you know, we they did that around the time of the Global Game Jam last year. So our the students we had participating in it, we made a site uh, we made like a design challenge for our site to, you know, go on this website and get some of their open access art and maybe put it in your game. And we had a, a group of students do that. Um, they even in doing it, uh, the museum administrator saw this game. And then in one of the like check-in meetings for their open access process, uh, called out and like showed uh, clips of our students game uh so it was really neat to see students have their their artwork acknowledged in that way by a, a group doing uh you know open access uh fine art collections yeah that's awesome now we've talked a lot about kind of the educational side of things you know one thing that, that's been around forever is just the stigma for educational games because for so long educational games were really just like a worksheet pretending to be a game you know it's like how to do math problems and pretending to be you know fighting zombies or whatever but it seems like more and more now and, and with games like La Mancha and there's other games coming out that it's kind of taking the idea of education and then making it a real game, not just a, you know, worksheet. And so tell me why that's important. Why do you think that's important to kind of bring more things out of the educational space and then kind of turn them into actual good games? Not, you know, not just uh, uh, learning concepts, but actually kind of more than that. Well, and it's funny you, you talk about that because I think there's a, there's that era of educational games, like, you know, your, your super solvers games and your Oregon trails and your math blasters, you know, from, I mean, I'm 34. So I grew up with that era, like that sort of golden era of educational games where there, they were good games. And then there was that, that era where it just sort of fell off and you're right. It became these sort of, um, you know, like you said, worksheets with, or, you know, they were gamified, uh, I guess, you know, it was the like more in the last decade term. And you had, uh, you know, so I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while and we would make, um, you know, I worked for a few labs that had that sort of direction to it. Like they wanted to do um, serious and educational games, uh, serious games referring to games that like are not for entertainment purposes, but they almost went too far because you had a lot of people, there was like, there was money in that for a while. And you had people who wanted to get into the money of that, but were not necessarily interested in games. And in some cases I worked with people that actively disliked games, but you know, liked the money that they could potentially get for these projects. So you had a few cases where, there were these people trying to get these game projects going, but they didn't actually understand the medium well enough to, to create something good. And um, you'd basically get either gamification. So reward systems applied to interactions, um, or you'd get something that was really more like a website 
and it wasn't really much of a game. So um, I almost like I started, does, you know, trying to do and trying to write about these crossovers between like, well, I know how to level design. Why don't I apply level design to this, you know, math game we're doing and use that as a pacing mechanic to introduce, you know, stuff like within the curriculum we're trying to teach or, um, you know, La Mancha, where it was like, I want to have fun goofing around in Don Quixote's world. But if you were to peel back these layers of this game, I also want you to be able to see that that there's something under the hood here. And I found that not only does that make not only does that make your game better um, because your game then becomes deeper uh, and and more interesting. Uh, you know, even people who aren't playing it for the educational aspect will be like, wow, that's what that book's about. Okay, maybe I'll go buy that. That sounds really cool. Like, I want to see how these things play out in the book. Um, so there's that component to it where it is that nice crossover. And then it's also neat just because like, you know, I can market it in different ways. I can market it to libraries or schools or, or you know, for um, regular tabletop fans. Um, so there is... There are really good reasons to do this. Um, and I think we're starting to get people who like when you do go to some of these like serious and educational game conferences, there's a lot of, you know, good game designers there who are like, yeah, can we start making these more like commercial games now? So it's definitely happening. It's just sort of slowly transforming as, you know, the game designers get more of a voice. Yeah, for sure. And, and going back to kind of what I'm trying to do in my classroom, my goal is really to kind of trick them into learning, you know, that they don't realize that they're learning. They don't under, they don't realize that I'm kind of injecting these different concepts and they leave class thinking, yeah, it's a fun game. But really, they, they've done more than that. They've learned some different concepts. They've learned some different critical thinking skills and things like that. And so I feel like there's just so much room, so much space now where you don't have to be overtly, this is an educational game, but at the same time, you can put some really cool educational things in there. And if the game is good, then people will enjoy it. They'll have fun. And at the same time, they're going to learn some things. And I know you've got like different things about chivalry. Like no one's going to sit down in 2019 and read a book about chivalry, but if they can just kind of pick up some of these concepts and pick up some of the quotes and some of the main ideas through cards in the ga a game like La Mancha, then you can kind of bridge the gap that, you know, like you're saying, a person might not go and read that book, but then they play the game like, oh, I want to I see how this plays out in, in the book. And so they can kind of, you know, go that next step. And so how, how much of that were you thinking about when you were making the game? Like, was that part of the key concepts in the beginning or does it just kind of happen naturally? Um, so I'm a big believer in, I call it listening to your game. Um, and, and again, this is like going back to architecture a bit, but there's this uh, really great quote by this architect, Louis Kahn, where he talks to, about materiality and he talks about, uh, you say to brick, what do you want brick? And brick says, I'd like an arch. And you say, but arches are expensive and hard to build. And brick says, I, I want an arch. And the point of that is to be like, you know, listen to your materials and, and work with them as in their natural state and what they are inclined to do, um, you know, for obvious, like not falling down reasons. But in games, it's sort of like I've taken that idea and really thought about, like, how do you listen to your game? Because, um, you know, for example, uh, the love mechanic. So in La Mancha, there is, there are, you know, I've taken... Uh, an equal number of, of uh, male coded characters and female coded characters in the, in the novel and have, you know, so that way, and there's like no rules barring people from, you know, like, Oh, okay. This is a male character. So the, the men have to sit out this love round one that's mechanically complex and would add some funkiness to the game. And two, you know, in 2019, it's, it, you know, it's, it's um, you just no, don't do it. Um, I want to make it as inclusive as possible. Um, but that's not something I was just wanting there to be like equality in the character makeup. But that was actually one of the things that people responded to the most in playtesting. They're like, wow, this is so cool because, you know, you have a male person taking on the role like so when you draw the love card you become that character so taking on the role of of dulcinea right um and there's a certain you know uh 
gender play that um, people who are studying gender identity in games really connected with. And, you know, that's not something that I explicitly went after, but it's something that people really said, wow, thank you for representing me in that way. And I was like, okay, great. You know, this is, um, that mechanic was also really interesting because somebody said uh, on the flip side, unrelated to the gender part, they're like, did you go for socially positive gameplay by trying to create something where people competed to complement each other? And I'd never thought of it like that. And I was like, holy cow, that is happening. <laughs> so people always come away from that round. One, it's funny. Two, you know, it you that's where the role playing gets really heavy. Um, and but three, like they also feel really good about themselves because you just were like oh your your eyes are as uh as green as a veil of pines you know that you know they come up with stuff based on the cards um so i'm a you know those things i really try to listen to and and if i see it happening i then try to maybe push it a little bit like maybe i'll write in a few more chivalry cards that could be be really good for complementing each other um sort of things so um, those are things that I really, uh, I've seen, but you don't really know until you play test that, you know, how a person's going to feel like you have an idea, but you're not really, you don't really know what it's going to be until it's in front of somebody. Um, likewise, we've seen groups that play together regularly kind of adopt certain, uh, chivalry cards as like their own internal inside jokes or memes, uh, where, uh, you know, and it's never the same based on different groups, like groups that I play with, they really like the card Julius Caesar's ashes because they just kind of like throw it in somebody's face and steal their hat and run versus like uh, another group. There's one that's like six ships loaded with wheat. And they thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And it, you know, so I've seen that happen. And again, you can't really predict that, but you just kind of embrace it when you see it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So when making a game like this, when you're trying to mix in maybe some things that, that aren't kind of the, the mainstream, it's not zombies, it's not uh, knights, it's not aliens, that kind of thing. And you're, you're trying to do something a little bit different and you're thinking about audience, you know, tell me about your, your process mm -hmm. of making this into a product, right? Because there's, there's plenty of space for game design just for game design's sake. And it's fun and it's not necessarily meant to go onto the market or at least not in some kind of major way. But when you were thinking about this game and trying to think about productability, maybe I'm probably a made up word, but anyway, product, productability, uh, what were you thinking? Kind of, how are you, you approaching that side of things? Oh man, marketing's hard. <laughs> um, marketing's very hard. Well, I'm going to start with that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think it is a, is a struggle because, you know, one of the reasons I self-published is because, you know, I would take it, I had an idea of what I wanted the game to be. And I, because I teach as a day job, and I have this game studio, but the game studio is really my way of, of putting out things that I make related to my, you know, writing and research and work. Um, I'm not having to live on this and thus I can get away with making something like not purely market driven decisions. Um, because like when I would talk to publishers, they'd be like, wow, this is cool, but you know, nobody, you know, not many people in the U.S. have read Don Quixote. So can it be something else? It's like, well, no, I want to make Don Quixote. Um, so there was there's a, a bit of that going on. Um, but on the flip side, there's a few things that have been, I think, uh, working for me, which is, uh, you know, tabletop gamers are a very literary bunch. So the idea, oh, oh, there's a Don Quixote game. That's great. Um, so there's been some some gravitation that way um you know i've been selling a lot in my local area so local designer has certainly helped um but beyond that you know beyond this purely geographic area um i did a lot of work trying to make the game seem as approachable as possible so one of it i already mentioned which was what's popular the sort of uh call and answer social games, uh, social creativity games, like your metagame, apples to apples, cards against humanity, super fight, you know, this kind of fits into that, that trend a bit. Um, and I wanted to do that. And then I would just even, you know, talk to, um, non gamers and be like, if I put this die, this type of die versus that type of die, which one would scare you away more? Um, for example, numerically 
uh, La Mancha would technically be more perfectly balanced if it had an eight-sided die. But talking with people, they were like, but that would make me not want to play it as much, uh, you know, as a casual audience, because it's a it's an unfamiliar piece of, of uh, you know, equipment to me. So I'd rather have a six-sided die. So that's why the players all have starter gear that gives them a automatic plus three, because that, like makes up for that lack of extra numbers in the die uh, to balance it out. So, you know, little things like that. um, I tried to make it as approachable as possible um, just so that I could get around some of those things. Like, you know, it is a role. It's, it's a game that like is a party game, but then kind of pretty quickly turns into a role-playing game. So it, it does have this like weird, cross audience but also not purely one audience or another type of thing going on um and same thing again with uh, again listeners in the u.s uh not many people have read don quixote so it's not like this is uh you know beowulf or tolkien or something that that has a big draw um so trying to pay attention to those forces while also making design decisions helps kind of has helped you know sand off those edges that might otherwise scare people away. So that's what I, that's some of what I did to try to, uh, again, you know, make it something that can exist on the market. Also small box, small box also makes it seem less and fewer pieces makes it seem more approachable. Right. And it also lowers your, your price point, which, you know, potentially brings more, more people in. And you bring up a really good point about, you know, understanding your market, understanding your audience and and only giving them things that they're comfortable with as far as like you're saying the dice. Like a D8 is an odd die. People, you know, they, they didn't grow up with a D8 unless they grew up playing D&D. In that case they grew up with all the dice and it's not a big deal. But yeah. you know for the most part games have D6s. And so just kind of approaching it from that angle is a really really smart way to go. Now have you thought about uh, kind of branching out and doing other themes, taking your concept, your core game experience, and then doing like a Sherlock Holmes or something like that, that maybe is a little bit uh, more marketable to a kind of wider audience. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about everything from, you know, what if I took you know, like Grimm's fairy tales and made a kid's La Mancha to, uh, you know, taking other books, uh, like you said, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes um, or a, uh, you know, it, it's, there's this weird back and forth between I'll get really excited by the idea of a book, but I'm like, Oh, that's, that's academic me talking and not necessarily, um, marketing me talking, um, because I'll get excited then about, uh, like Dante's Inferno. I guess you could do, I guess enough people have heard of that in the Western canon where it'd probably have more reach. Um, but I've thought about like even something like that. Um, so yeah. And, and, what I think always uh, what I have to watch out for when I do that is then I will start thinking about the actual like work a little bit more. And then I start analyzing it and I'm like, but actually this mechanic should be that way. And then I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I, then I'd start designing a whole new game. So it's something that I've, I've been toying with. I haven't really jumped in simply because uh, you know, I've been spending so much time uh, on like, getting La Mancha produced and getting it uh, shipped out. But it's something that I'm actually like starting to think about uh, definitely for sure. I just have to like land on the right work. Yeah. Very cool. And I can even see, you know, fans of La Mancha saying, okay, tonight I want to play the Sherlock Holmes version tonight. I want to play, you know, this other version and, and kind of giving them them options. I should have asked you this from the beginning. What does La Mancha mean? Oh, La Mancha is just the, the uh, region of Spain that Don Quixote is from. So he, cause he's Don Quixote de la Mancha. So I, yeah, I, I just, um, you know, I thought that that alone, uh, you know, it sounded like a, a good, for some reason I didn't want to literally call it like Don Quixote. Um, you know, I wanted to put a little more spin on it. So I just took the back half, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And it makes it it makes it sound cool. I think La Mancha does sound in, more interesting than just Don Quixote. Uh, and it gives you maybe some more options like La Mancha and you can have different versions versus mm-hmm. Don Quixote, the Sherlock Holmes version. Like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, like, <laughs> but, you know, uh, something like something Sherlock Holmes uh, or like, you know, uh, elementary. I, I wouldn't use that one. That one's overused. But you know what I mean? Like I could take right. something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. A La Mancha game. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've thought about. Um, it's 
I, I would really have to evaluate because I did the, uh, so there's watercolor paintings on La Mancha, um, like custom watercolor paintings. I did them all myself. So I really, um, I think I'd have to sit down and really think about like how much do I want to do again? Cause, uh, yeah, that was a lot of work, <laughs> but, uh, definitely, definitely worth it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So where do we go from here as far as fine arts? You know, I've seen some board games that have come out that are all about orchestra and they've taken the concepts of like notes and how music is made and, and those become your resources. And you're trying to put together these amazing uh, orchestral, I don't even know, I don't even know the name. I'm from Alabama. So it's not my, not my strong suit. <laughs> but um, what do you call that? Uh, compositions. Compositions. Right. And so I've seen games that, that kind of take on that approach, but what, what other things could we do? Like if we're going to sit here and like look out over the next five years, 10 years, where do you see things going? Where do you see, you know, possibilities that we could go if game designers kind of get more in tune with the fine arts and bringing these things into the game game world? What do you, what do you think? Like if you could just kind of project out, what are your thoughts? I mean, coming from it, uh, coming at this from a few different points of view, I know that things that I'm particularly interested in are um, continuing like the museum work or, you know, other cultural institution work. Um, you know, I, it's funny you do mention music actually, because with, I think music was like the canary in this coal mine, at least for me, where you started, you know, 10, 15 years ago, getting, uh, you know, concerts of orchestral game music coming to the U S like, uh, dear friends, final fantasy and things like that, where you're taking the thing away from the game itself and showing it in this other context, familiar to the world of the fine arts. And I remember seeing dear friends and sitting next to two little old ladies who were like, who they just had season tickets to the opera uh, the concert hall that we were in. Right. So they just came as a matter of course, they'd come to whatever it is, uh, whatever was playing. And they started asking me questions about what is final fantasy? Is it this? Is it that they were very interested in the video game because they had experienced this, this part of the video game that looked like the thing that the media that they were interested in. So, um, you know, music, I think we're starting to see other things do that. Like, game art. So this thing at the Akron Art Museum, Open World, um, that is contemporary art using the tools and the uh, visual style of video games to do the things that contemporary art does, like make make statements and arguments or, or show something about the world around us through, you know, video game stuff. Like one one piece in the, in the uh, exhibition is just a video of somebody playing World of Warcraft but going to the middle of the town square and having conversations about feminism. Um, you know, that's, that's something that is more in line with what artwork does um, than just, you know, being what people think video games do, but it's happening in a video game. So I think we're starting to see more of that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that as like, what, what has happened in those institutions in this past decade is that, video games have shown that they can attract audiences to these places. And now we're seeing that, that there's now that that bit of convincing has been done, even though some people think it's kind of grown worthy that we have to do that. Um, now that that bit of convincing is done, now we can almost get to the real world work of showing games in the same way that a piece of art would be shown uh, curated in the same way. So I think that's happening. Um, I think that, in terms of you know the actual game design, I think showing like having a collection of these sorts of things that get good attention, that uh, perhaps like succeed, you know, and and like I'm self distributing, self publishing, so my my market base is not huge right now, um, but you know through a like successful Kickstarter and and some press and you know things like that. Um, being able to take something like La Mancha and show it around, I'm hoping that we see other people try to do these crossovers and we get more unique games, but also games that, again, can feed those those cultural institutions doing these game events and game exhibitions. Um, and then I, I, because I do criticism, um, you know, like criticism in the academic sense, uh, I, you know, the type of writing that I'm doing, I really would 
you know, I've been trying to do art and art history style writing about video games, but I'm also trying to think about like ways we can, you know, break down games into kind of like what we did with music where it's like, let's take this piece of music and understand it as music. Oh, but it's from a video game. Um, I'd really like to start seeing us be able to take deeper dives and see the, the, you know, ingredients of games themselves be seen as artwork. So I think it's a, like I said before, it's kind of a nexus time. I think we've done a lot of proving, um, you know, but I think like, and a lot of foundation building, but I think there's a a lot of rabbit holes for people to go down still certainly. Um, And again, you know, let's use games as this way to, to understand, um, like you said, things people don't want to read. Like how many of us have had to read something in high school. And when you have to read it for high school, you're like, Oh, this is, this is terrible. But then you find it on a bookshelf like 10 years later. And then you say, Hey, the grapes of wrath isn't so bad. (laughs) Um, you know, like I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, this has been great, man. Do you have any kind of like closing thoughts for people maybe listening to this, maybe thinking, hey, I could make a game like that. I could I could do one of those crossovers they're talking about. What would be your advice to them? Uh, definitely do it. Uh, we need more of it. It's awesome. I'd play it. Uh, let me know. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I, I would love to see more people do this because, you know, one of the great things about this is that this is a way to make your game unique. Uh Tim Schaefer from Double Fine said it in this uh, game design podcast I, I used to listen to called uh, Checkpoints, um, where he said one of the reasons he's able to make the games he does, like you know Psychonauts and Grim Fandango and things like that, is because he he studied folklore in college, so he pulled from that background to to think about game ideas instead of just again going like sci-fi fantasy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so please do it because you will make more unique games. Um, and if you do these deep dives, because like you said, I mean, I could have just made like Candyland with windmills, right? But I'd rather make something that somebody who is like a scholar of Don Quixote um, would look at. And I've actually like sent the game to Don Quixote scholars and they've received it very well. Um having that backing gives you more audience, gives you more awareness. Um, and I, it, and, you know, especially audience from other worlds that aren't just the game world. So that can be, that can be really, excuse me, that can be really important um, when you are building projects like this. Um, so, you know, in terms of advice, uh, play test a lot, play test often, you know, don't just make the pretty version of your game right away. Make a version that's like Sharpie on index cards and prototype a ton. Uh, read about, read the thing you're making your game based on. Um, I'm really surprised when I have a student that'll say like, I'm making a, a thing based on, you know, Wizard of Oz. And I'm like, oh, have you read Wizard of Oz? And they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, uh-oh. Um, so like, <laughs> read the thing you're doing and then maybe read about, what other people have said about that thing. Cause that'll give you new game ideas. And then, uh, I don't know. Um, it kind of goes into the whole rabbit hole of like, you think game design is all the software and the game development stuff, but then you learn about shipping and manufacturing and stuff like that. You know, try to try to look at other game designers blogs about all that logistics stuff. Cause like if you've never made a board game before, it's a lot of logistics, <laughs> uh, when you get it professionally printed. So, um, you know, think about that and, uh, small box, you know, for me, small box has been great, not only for marketing and making it approachable, but also, uh, you know, it saves me on warehousing cause I could just put it in my garage. So yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been great. Where can people find La Mancha? So La Mancha is at, um, so my, uh, studio's website is, uh, my studio is Pie for Breakfast, and my studio's website is pfbstudios.com. And if you go to pfbstudios.com forward slash shop, uh, you can find copies of La Mancha, both the physical game and the print and play edition. Physical game is uh, $30, print and play edition is 15 
and uh, that's where you can find it. You can also follow me on Twitter at totter, T-O-T-T-E-R-8-7. Come check out the game. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with La Mancha and kind of getting the word out there and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Love the show. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?